The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. I'm going to start today with something very uh, pithy and simple that I know is going to get some of my audience upset with me, and that's okay because we can disagree, I think, Uh, which is that Barack Obama, former president, was right to say that the defund the police slogan is not a good slogan and that it needs to be completely renamed. And I'm actually reminded of the Ronald Reagan quote. If you are explaining you are losing, Ronald Reagan was correct. And Republicans seem to get this. This is one of the biggest failures of the left. If you look at the at the work of uh, people like uh, Thomas Frank and, and George Lakoff in particular about naming and framing and slogans, the left is absolutely terrible at this. And when you have to explain, well, when I said defund, I meant this other thing, you're already losing. So let, let's kind of go through it in layers. Actually defunding and eliminating the police as a big picture plan doesn't make any sense. It, it, we've talked about this before. It, it's not reasonable. It's not practical. It's not going to happen in any uh, 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 framework that we can imagine. Even places that, quote, have done it, haven't really done it. Sometimes they've just separated up police departments into different subgroups or units or whatever the case may be. Now, some people are saying defund the police, but they mean something else. They mean, um, you, you know, we'll reform mostly in some places. We'll have fewer police in others. We'll demilitarize and we'll change how prosecution is done. Well, now you're explaining away a slogan that doesn't really represent what you mean. So why are you using the slogan anyway? And I've been talking about this since day one of this slogan during the George Floyd protests. I put out like a 10 or 12 point plan for how I would reform the police. And many in my audience agreed with demilitarization, uh, uh, training as social workers, extending police training periods, stopping what I call low effort policing. It's a very long list which you can go back to. And there were some in my audience who furiously did not agree with me. And I presume that those same folks aren't going to like what Barack Obama said. So what did Barack Obama say? Let's take a look at that. If you believe, as as I do, that we should be able to reform the criminal justice system so that it's not biased and treats everybody fairly, I guess you can use a snappy slogan like defund the police, but you know you've lost a big audience the minute you say it, which makes it a lot less likely that you're actually going to get the changes you want done. But if you instead say, let's reform the police department so that everybody's being treated fairly, you know, divert young people from getting into crime. And if there's a homeless guy, can maybe we send a mental health worker there instead of an armed unit that could end up resulting in a tragedy? Suddenly, a whole bunch of folks who might not otherwise listen to you are listening to you. So the key is deciding, do you want to actually get something done or do you want to feel good among the people you already agree with? And if you want to get something done in a democracy, in a country as big and diverse as ours, then you, you've got to be able to meet people where they are and play a, a game of addition and not subtraction. 
This is simply pragmatism. And Barack Obama actually lists many of the exact same reforms that I suggested in my list some months ago. Barack Obama is making the exact same case that I made about actually getting things done. That's what I care about. I want to get things done. Think about it in those terms. There are millions of people in the United States who believe the police should be reformed, and you even have allies on areas of the right on that idea. You have some on the libertarian right who want to reform the drug policing piece of police departments. You have some on the religious right that want community programs rather than prison for certain crimes. You have people like me on the left who want to end the war on drugs and end police militarization and solve the problem of it being so difficult to hold bad actors accountable due to a system that favors police when they're charged with crimes and prevents this global uh, national bad actors database, you know, all these different things. You have all these different people who could conceivably work together on this. And then you have a tiny portion of people who actually just want police flatly defunded and eliminated in some cases. So if what you mean by defund is the things I mentioned and the things that Barack Obama mentioned, then you simply lose potential allies when the slogan is defund the police and the police. So I just don't have time when things are so critical to be toying around with slogans that are going nowhere anyway. Defund the police sounds like you're saying uh, we should take funding away from police who are bad and do away with police as an institution. Now, some people do think that. If you're somebody who thinks that we just disagree, most people don't think that they think something closer to my reform plan. So by using the slogan, you're immediately trying to explain what you really mean. And that means that you're losing. Let me give you one further example. One of the things we need are police officers from more diverse backgrounds. And I'm not talking, you know, racially or religiously or economically even, although that that would be good. I'm talking culturally. You find that in many cities, police are disproportionately from conservative rural areas outside the city. One thing that will help fix police is more people who would do the job the way we want them to do the to do the job. People who are from and even live in those cities. Now, typically the cities are more expensive than the rural areas. So sometimes police being underpaid and not being able people in cities can't live in the cities on a police salary. That's why you get people from the rural conservative areas coming in because they can come in and then live in the cheaper areas. You might have to increase funding in those cases for salaries to get more cultural diversity in the police department. So how does defund the police help achieve that? It doesn't. Now, there's a reasonable counterpoint from uh, uh, people, including Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who says you don't start with the safe ask. You start with more and you negotiate back. The problem with that is specifically with a slogan like defund the police. Tons of people tune out because it sounds wacky. It's not like, hey, listen, we'd like 22 bucks an hour. So we'll ask for it and we'll negotiate down to 15 because everybody will participate in the negotiation. Now, it's not we would love Medicare for all, but we would negotiate to a strong public option to start. And then next year we come back with Medicare for all. If you want to get rid of police altogether, uh, you immediately get a rejection from a lot of the people that are in the reform and they see you as a non serious actor 
and it stops the conversation. So, yes, I agree with President Obama. I think he's absolutely right here. And we're going to damage our own ability to fix the problems that we've identified by using slogans like defund when it's not what most people mean and it's never going to happen anyway. Tell me where I'm wrong. I, I'm ready to have a bigger discussion about it. Joe Biden has made another cabinet selection. It's a very important one because it is the Secretary of Health and Human Services uh, who will be coming in during a global hundred year pandemic. And it turns out that Joe Biden has selected someone who has long supported Medicare for all. This is very interesting. It's a big deal. And it is Xavier Becerra who has been chosen to lead Joe Biden's Department of Health and Human Services. Now, back in 2017, uh, when when he was also California attorney general, as he still is, Becerra said he would, quote, absolutely support a Medicare for all plan. Becerra will be leaving his post as California attorney general. He will be a huge part of fighting the coronavirus pandemic. He will be a very welcome replacement to the clownish Trump secretary of HHS, Alex Azar, who is just a wild Trump brown noser. Now, from the standpoint of identity, there is another first. Uh, Xavier Becerra would be the first Latino to run HHS. We're expecting more more health related announcements from Joe Biden very, very soon. We found out about some of them. I mentioned already secretary of HHS will be uh, Xavier Becerra. Uh, at the CDC, it will be Rochelle Walensky, the Mass General Hospital Chief of Infectious Disease here in Boston. Surgeon General will be Dr. Vivek Murthy, who was also Barack Obama's Surgeon General. So these are solid choices, qualified people. Now, I admit what does not make sense to me about choosing Xavier Becerra for secretary of HHS is that he does lack experience in the area of health and medicine. He's a lawyer. Uh, now, there's a counterpoint to that. Now, it's great that Xavier Becerra has supported Medicare for all. I see a lot of Bernie people who like the choice for that reason, but he does lack experience in the field of medicine. On the other hand, he has been front and center as a lawyer fighting for Obamacare. And as I imagine, we will see as soon as Joe Biden is sworn in, Republicans go right back to let's get rid of Obamacare. Let's get rid of Obamacare, even though we have no replacement. In that sense, Becerra is a good choice. Uh, but remember that, you know, Biden doesn't support Medicare for all anyway, but he does want to expand the Affordable Care Act to include a public option. And Becerra has experience defending the ACA in uh, 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 legal settings. And um, the the other important aspect of this is that the truth is that secretary of HHS, you're not really making medical decisions. You're really an executive managing the apparatus of health and human services. And in that sense, there's no way to argue that Becerra is unqualified. Now, hilariously, there are some Republicans who have immediately said uh, Becerra is a radical. He's just, he's a radical. We can't we can't have him running HHS. And of course, <laughs> you know, those those uh, guidelines uh, for what counts as radical at this point have been completely cartoonified by the right. This also, by the way, take Xavier Becerra off the list to be the replacement for Kamala Harris, whose Senate seat will be vacated when she becomes a vice president. And that's another story which we'll be covering. And, and lastly, there is a good chance that Becerra will have a tough confirmation fight in the Senate. I think he will be confirmed because ultimately he's completely qualified. But I think it, it has the potential to get quite ugly. Let me know what you think about this election. I'm on Twitter at D I'd love to hear from you. The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com.
One of our sponsors is Hydrant, which is a delicious fruit drink powder that you mix into water for rehydration, and they're giving you 25% off your first order. It's made with four key electrolytes that the body needs, powerfully supporting your hydration. Hydrant tastes great. It's made with real fruit juice. It's been a great part of my daily routine for a while now. Keeping myself hydrated puts me in a better mood. The body needs hydration for basic energy and focus, and hydrant is the perfect way to rehydrate, especially because it's cost effective and lower in sugar compared to all of those popular sports drinks that are out there. You really have to try it for yourself to see what I mean. It tastes great. They also have a variety called Hydrant Immunity packed with vitamins A, B, C, and D, which is also very much worth trying. Hydrant has a full refund guarantee if you're not satisfied and you'll get 25% off your first order. When you go to drinkhydrant.com slash Pacman or enter the code Pacman at checkout, that's drink H Y D R A N T dot com slash P A K M A N coupon code Pacman. I've put the link in the podcast notes. What if you could read 10 books? in just one sitting. That's exactly what one of my favorite apps lets you do. It's called Blinkist. And what they do is take thousands of popular nonfiction books. They condense them down into text or audio that you can consume in 15 minutes. Blinkist makes sure that you're getting all of the important core insights from each book. So it's perfect for exploring a book you otherwise wouldn't have time for. If there's a full book you're thinking about buying, you can use Blinkist to get a sample first. Just think how much you can enrich yourself by being able to soak up an entire nonfiction book in just 15 minutes. I recently checked out the book Podcast Marketing Strategy by Daniel Rolls and Kieran Rogers, and so useful, so particularly applicable to what I'm doing. Really recommend it. Blinkist has books on politics, philosophy, science. They have 27 different nonfiction categories and a subscription is only about eight bucks a month and you get access to the entire library. But you can try it totally free and get 25 percent off a subscription when you go to Blinkist.com slash Pacman. That's B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T dot com slash Pacman. The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. Remember that our program is mostly funded by members who sign up at joinpakman.com. You'll get commercial free audio and video streams of the show, as well as the daily bonus show. The bonus show is an extra show every day just for our members. It's a beautiful thing. Sign up at joinpakman.com. Uh, for me, popularity contests are not a good way to measure the worth of anything. I think we need to think more deeply, more critically to find out whether something is good or bad, uh, valuable or worthless, worth doing or not worth doing. But there's a big contingent that supports Donald Trump uh, as well as to Donald Trump personally, to whom everything is popularity. It's approval rating. It's the size of Trump's crowd. It's that type of thing. And along these lines is a very triggering poll for Donald Trump, which has already been released. And it shows that Joe Biden is already weeks before taking office more popular than Donald Trump has ever been during his entire presidency. The numbers are really stunning. Gallup has been tracking presidential approval 
for decades, both during uh, transition periods and presidencies. And Joe Biden's approval has risen to 55 percent already. And this is a number that Trump has never reached during his entire presidency. Trump never got to 50 percent and has currently dipped down to 42 percent approval, while Joe Biden has jumped to 55 percent. And something very interesting are the sort of internals of these numbers, how they're made up in terms of party, where we see that over the month from mid-October to mid-November, Biden's approval among Republicans doubled. The numbers are still low, but it doubled from six to twelve. Biden's approval among independents is up seven points, 48 to 55. And it's basically unchanged changed among Democrats because it was already at 95 percent. It went to 96. Now, Donald Trump's approval also hasn't changed among Democrats. It's at three percent. It was at three percent before and it's at three percent now. Independent approval of Trump is almost unchanged, down two points. But Trump among Republicans has lost six points of approval. So there's a few important aspects to this story. Number one, Trump has been and remains a historically unpopular president. Trump is the outlier here. Typically, the president elect gets a bump when they're awaiting inauguration. Trump never got that back in November of 2016, December of 2016, and, and the first part of January 2016. And in the end, that's not really surprising because in 2016, remember that Donald Trump won electorally with the biggest popular vote loss of anything we've seen for a winning president. But there's actually more to this. The reason I care about this is not just Trump will be triggered. OK, what we have right now is a situation where we will be changing federal leadership in the middle of the absolute worst moment in the United States of a global hundred year pandemic. The importance of Joe Biden building goodwill with as many people in the United States as possible can't possibly be overstated. And if Biden's approval has already jumped to 55 percent, presumably at least some of it because Joe Biden formed a coronavirus task force, has actually provided some parallel leadership to Trump when it comes to the virus has announced he'll be bringing on Anthony Fauci as chief medical advisor. Hopefully people are seeing the approach of Biden and are reacting to it with goodwill because on day one, Joe Biden is going to have to spring into action. Now, of course, on J Biden will be inaugurated January 20th. You know and I know that on January 21st, January 23rd, maybe at the latest, Republicans will start blaming Biden for coronavirus deaths, even though, of course, all of this has to do with the federal failure to start testing and deal with this seriously at the beginning. Uh, cases and deaths reflect activity weeks and months prior. OK, we already know that. But on day one, Joe Biden is going to come in and he's going to say, let's listen to the science and medical community. Um, and if we see Joe Biden spike to maybe 60 percent approval or 62, Hopefully he will get as much of the country as possible on board with working together to deal with the virus. That's the top priority right now. Presidents come and go. Tracking approval rating is not very important in the abstract. But right now we've had as many as 230,000 coronavirus cases in a day. We're starting to see days with 3000 deaths. We are starting to see vaccines hopefully rolling out this month. Presidential approval actually right now connects with saving lives in that it will signal buy in with what incoming President Joe Biden will likely be asking people to do, including wearing masks when he's sworn in. And yes, the optics of highly triggerable popularity obsessed Trump 
already being outdone by Joe Biden's approval before Biden is even president. I do admit that it's funny in a sense, but it also is very important on to vaccines. Now, uh, this is really uh, a great uh, decision that Pfizer and Moderna have made. Pfizer and Moderna have turned down Donald Trump's invitation to a propaganda vaccine summit scheduled for today at the White House. And I have to tell you, seeing this makes me more confident in these vaccines. Not that I wasn't already confident, but this increases to me as a signal that Pfizer and Moderna, as the manufacturers of the first two coronavirus vaccines expected in the US very soon, they are staying away from political optics when it comes to the vaccine. Trump is doing by the time you listen to today's show, he may already have done it. A vaccine summit at the White House to take credit for these vaccines. Trump will be there. Pence will be there. There will be other private sector executives there, including people involved sort of in the logistics of the shipping and distribution of these vaccines. It certainly is being interpreted as an event meant to pressure the FDA to quickly approve these vaccines. It's a political event to put political pressure on the FDA. And both Pfizer and Moderna have said, no, thanks. We're not going to go. We know that the FDA commissioner, Stephen Hahn, has been called to the White House at least two times, almost like being called to the principal's office to explain why aren't you approving these vaccines more quickly? So we know that the White House is very anxious to see that happen. So there's a few good things here. First of all, good for Pfizer and Moderna. They are developing a vaccine. They're going through the process for approval. They are opting out of this political charade. And that makes me more confident that they are doing things the right way. Now, CNBC was saying the official reason that they aren't participating is that they have vaccine approval pending before the FDA so that it would not be ethical or appropriate for Pfizer and Moderna to appear with the FDA at what is a political propaganda event. Moderna put out a statement very carefully worded, which said we don't have an ideological objection to being there. But when we learned the agenda of the meeting, we realized our participation isn't required. And that's such a narrowly and carefully worded public relations statement that it really doesn't change the understanding of why they're not going to be there for me. But the bottom line is the optics of the vaccine manufacturer and the regulatory agency that will be deciding about that vaccine's approval being there together at what is a political dog and pony show, it wouldn't be good. So they're making the right decision. Secondly, the uh, optics of attending would fuel the idea that Donald Trump had something to do with these vaccines when in fact he did not. Them not attending Pfizer and Moderna is also good for that reason, although Trump sycophants will think that this is the Trump vaccine anyway. And you know what? I don't care. If it convinces them to get vaccinated, they can think whatever they want. Think if you'll go and get the vaccine because you believe it to be the Trump vaccine, have at it, Haas. We all benefit from you going and getting vaccinated. But now, and this is the really big explosive story, we have learned that Pfizer may have extra reason not to attend, which is that we learned yesterday that over the summer, Pfizer went to the Trump administration and gave them an option to buy and secure more doses of their vaccine. Trump refused. And now Donald Trump is demanding more production from Pfizer, even though he turned down more doses. Let's talk about that next. This is truly horrible. It, it, there's just no other way to say it. We learned yesterday that the Trump administration passed. They said, no, thanks. 
when Pfizer in late summer offered to sell them more vaccine doses from this initial tranche that is now starting to be delivered. We are already seeing uh, uh, British citizens vaccinated in the UK. So I really need you to understand what's going on here. In the last few days, we learned Pfizer may not be able to get as many doses to the United States as we had hoped beyond these initial doses. And it's now believed that after this initial set of doses that is already uh, uh, being delivered in advance of approval that is expected soon. We are not expecting for the U.S. to get more Pfizer vaccine doses until June of 2021. What? What on earth? June of 2021. How is that possible? It's possible because when the Trump administration said no thanks to Pfizer about buying extra doses in late summer, Pfizer offered them to other countries. Other countries that said yes. One example is the UK. Again, the UK is already vaccinating people. It's just blunder after blunder, and these are deadly uh, blunders. I mean, quite literally, how many extra people will die because we will be vaccinating fewer people with the Pfizer vaccine as a result of Trump turning down purchasing more doses? So now Trump is panicked. Trump is scrambling to try to force Pfizer into selling these doses to the United States. Trump haphazardly and desperately has put together an executive order that he might sign today or tomorrow, which is, quote, to ensure that the U.S. government prioritizes getting the vaccine to American citizens before it goes to other nations. It's not at all clear with regard to enforcement mechanisms what it is that that executive order would even do. Pfizer has sold doses to other countries because Trump turned them down. I would call it a comedy of errors, except there's nothing funny about it. It's more like a tragedy of errors, deadly errors. And in the meantime, not only is the United Kingdom already vaccinating people, the European Union has reached a deal with Pfizer for 200 million doses with an option for 100 million more. Now, when asked about this, the Trump administration spokeswoman for HHS said, quote, we are going to get the 100 million we agreed on. And listen, in any case, there are five other possible vaccines. So they're essentially admitting, yeah, we're not likely to get more than just that first tranche of vaccines from Pfizer, but we're sort of counting on other vaccines anyway. And um, understand that the other vaccines other than the Moderna one are not likely to be approved anytime soon. So it is just pathetic misstep after misstep by this administration. Now, let's think of the why. Why would Trump turn down vaccine doses? The only thing I can think of is the Pfizer vaccine wasn't funded by Operation Warp Speed. Is it possible that Trump is so self-centered, so narcissistic, where he didn't want to commit to more doses because Pfizer wasn't an Operation Warp Speed participant? Because at the same time, even though Pfizer didn't participate in Operation Warp Speed, Trump and his staffers have been taking credit for it anyway. So why would that stop them? So the trajectory now is given that we will not have that many doses of the Pfizer vaccine. Uh, the trajectory optimistically would be with Pfizer and Moderna's vaccine. We would have enough supply over the next six months to vaccinate about 100 million Americans. That's a little under a third of the population. There's the possibility of getting 100 million doses total. Remember, two doses per person. So 100 million would be for 50 million people from the Oxford Johnson and Johnson and Novavax vaccine options. We don't know when those will be approved or what availability will be. It's also lower efficacy as of right now. But 
we might be able to get 50 million more people vaccinated with those. So that puts us at optimistically 100 million people vaccinated, maybe by April, oh, April 1st, maybe May 1st starts getting warmer. We would have about 30 percent vaccination plus five percent people with natural immunity from having the virus, although we don't know how long that immunity lasts. Thirty five ish going into the summer, more people outdoors, um, uh, few, less spread and more vaccines coming forward. So it, it still does seem as though it's plausible that the second half of 2021 will be looking much better than now. Do you think I'm being too optimistic based on the numbers we have? Let me know. In either case, it will be very good to have Donald Trump gone in six weeks. We will have more coverage of this on the show's Instagram, which is at David Pakman show. You can also find a loony, wacky, unhinged hate mail I got today on my Instagram, David The David Pakman show at David I want to let you know that our sponsor Vincero Watches is having a massive holiday sale on all of their products right now, and you can take advantage of it by going to davidpackman.com slash watch. A brand new high quality wristwatch really is the perfect way to add something fresh to your style, whether it's for you or a gift for someone else. Vincero is a brand that has a serious dedication to the craft of watchmaking, which is really evident when you look closely at their watches. I wear Vincero watches myself. Lately, I've been wearing one from their Icon Automatic collection. It's the mesh matte black watch, and I love the sleek, minimalist design. Their watches are actually sold at a fair price. Their mission has always been to make a wristwatch from high end materials, but one that everyday people can afford. And that's why they have over twenty five thousand five star reviews, because you won't find a better made watch for this great of a price anywhere else. You can get big holiday discounts on all of their products right now and free shipping when you go to davidpackmancom slash watch. I've put the link in the podcast notes. Welcome back to the David Pakman Show. It's great to welcome to the program today Charles Whelan, who is professor of public policy at Dartmouth, author of a number of books, many of which I've read, including uh, Naked Economics, Naked Money, Naked Statistics. Uh, great to have you on today. Great. I'm glad you've read all the naked books. That's yes. how we refer to this series. So uh, you talk well in the books, you talk a lot, particularly in Naked Economics and Naked Money about the impact and repercussions at a macroeconomic level of the government doing things, which include making adjustments to the money supply, um, making money available in different ways. So maybe to pick something that's going on now, when you look at the so-called coronavirus stimulus and how that was administered partially to individuals, partially as loans, partially to corporations, what about it from a broad economic standpoint was done correctly and, and what was not so good? I think the best thing is that it put money in the pockets of people who needed it, small businesses. And we'll get to how well it was targeted because that anticipates, I think, one of the weaknesses. And also consumers who are at risk of missing rent payments, being evicted and the like. 
one of the most intriguing concepts in economics is the paradox of thrift. This idea that when something bad happens, our natural and entirely rational response is to spend less, to hang on to what we have. And of course, as soon as we hang on to what we have, then we don't buy a refrigerator, don't buy a car, don't go out to dinner. And that's the income of all of those folks. So they hang on more tightly. And of course, more businesses are in distress. So somehow government needs to overcome that paradox of thrift. Now, in the financial crisis, the problem was that all our financial institutions were paralyzed. Nobody could get credit. If you wanted to go to a restaurant, the restaurant was open. But, the, you know, how can we open the spigots of credit again so that the economy worked? With COVID, we've got an entirely different problem. The banking system is mercifully healthy. And many people went into COVID in pretty good financial shape. But they couldn't spend the money they had because the restaurant was closed. So the challenge there was to keep those restaurants afloat until we could get through, and I guess we're now seeing the end of the tunnel, the pandemic. Just keep them afloat as opposed to starting up, say, the financial system again. Yeah, it seems when I look at the, the way some European countries and other countries handled this, they were more aggressive with the idea of we will pay the salaries of your employees so that you don't lay anybody off. I think the idea being that there would be less friction in getting things back up to speed because the the employees would still be employees and, and so on. Do you think that that was not done well enough in the U.S.? I think our approach was probably a little more scattershot. Some of the payments to businesses had the effect of keeping employees on the books. On the other end, I talked to small business people who faced a dilemma whereby if they were kept on at reduced salary, their employees might have done better if they went on unemployment. Right. And so you created some kind of tension there. And then obviously what we've been reading in the news in the last couple of weeks about a high proportion of these payments going to a small number of firms. I haven't delved into that, but that does get to a question you always have to face, which is how well targeted is this to the folks who really need support in the near term? That's priority number one. Priority number two is how well targeted is it to the folks who will continue to spend in ways that keep other businesses healthy? And what what are the answers to those two questions? As I far as I was done, somebody else. You know, I, it, it strikes me as given the time allotted that it was probably about a B plus. Okay. I mean, I, you know, we forget that nobody was. Well, it's not true. Nobody was planning for this, but it certainly wasn't what we expected to come along. And when you've got to drop something like like this so quickly and deal with the politics, get it through a very divided Congress, I think we did actually reasonably well up to the present. Where now again. We're arguing over what the next phase of it ought to be. Yeah. I mean, I think that we can talk about the lack of pandemic response readiness by the administration on the more medical side, getting rid of the pandemic response team, ignoring the playbook, et cetera. But the shock to the system from the economic side would have been a shock regardless, it sounds like, is what you're saying. I think that's true. And I think there's some things that seem superficially attractive that have some downsides. So, for example, the moratorium on evictions and moratorium on things like that, it makes perfect sense. Like you do not want to be throwing people out in the street in the middle of the pandemic. On the other hand, you do have to appreciate that those folks who are not paying rent are not paying rent to other s small property owners who will then have trouble. So I, you know, I'm much more comfortable with something that substitutes for those rent payments right. so that there's no eviction and therefore keeps the property owners whole as opposed to just throwing the thrust of the pain on these small renters, many of whom may have just a couple of apartments that are a source of revenue. And if we say you can't evict them, but they're not paying your rent, 
then you've just created a different level of distress. There is a perspective in economic thinking. Anytime you're talking about uh, giving people money, this applies to stimulus. This applies to programs like universal basic income. Uh, this applies to minimum wage increases. And the very general idea is you devalue the currency when you when you make it easier to get money, when you increase the supply of money, simple supply and demand suggests each dollar becomes worth less. There is inflation and you end up basically in the exact same place. Can you talk now about the additional knowledge we have, including from behavioral economics and other types of economic thinking that that makes that less cut and dry? Well, the one great puzzle of our time pre covid is why we're not seeing more inflation. We have pumped going back to the financial crisis up to and including the covid response. We have pumped just staggering amounts of money and liquidity into the pipes and we're barely reaching our inflation tar targets and sometimes failing to reach our inflation targets. So if you went back to grad school, you know, when I was in grad school in the early 90s at the University of Chicago and said, hey, let me give you a hypothetical experiment where we pump trillions of dollars into the economy. Do you think you're going to get price increases or maybe even a little deflation? Everybody would have said that is impossible. We're still trying to kind of work through that part of the behavioral economics explanation. Just let me say parenthetically, I think behavioral econ is one of the most interesting and exciting things to come along because it, yep. it helps to answer some of these questions is that when you become conditioned to stable prices for a long period of time, then it's harder to raise prices. It's the flip side of the 70s when everyone just assumed, hey, we're going to raise. I don't care what's going on in the macro. My prices are going up 15 percent this year just because that's what you do in spring. You know, maybe we're seeing the backside of that. Uh, there's some discussion about whether globalization has just continued to increase the global supply so much that we can absorb the money and and spend it around the world. And the, the competition from China and Vietnam keeps prices low because American firms can't raise prices. It just keep, keeps that constant pressure. My colleague here, Danny Blanchflower, has argued that a lot of the labor market data are very misleading. Unemployment looks really low. But when you delve into it, a lot of folks are not working as many hours as they would like to. They're feeling more tenuously attached to the labor market. And then he's found this interesting thing where if you ask people how likely they are to be fired or lose their job, they overstate it by like fivefold. Hmm. You know, because you can then follow them and find out how many of them are actually fired. What that means is that they are very reticent to ask for more money because they feel that their job is more precarious than it actually is. And that is another thing, keeping prices low. So it's probably some combination of these things. But I suspect that if you come up with some unifying theory of why all this money flowing into the system hasn't led to more inflation, you will certainly be on the Nobel shortlist. Well, on, on the other side of this example that we're seeing in, I think, in both naked economics and money, although you'll you'll correct me. You often use my birth country of Argentina as an example <laughs> of disasters when it comes to currency. I mean, we've had we had, you know, the peg, the dollar peso peg, which completely failed hyperinflation, not at the level of, of like Zimbabwe or Venezuela, but but still pr pretty bad. All these ter terrible situations when it comes to currency. What seems to be the tipping point where those cascading currency disasters happen in countries? I think the difference between Argentina and most places in the world yeah. 
is that there's just not a lot of credibility. People don't believe the central bank. They don't believe the fiscal authorities. And a lot of monetary policy is about credible commitment that you say you're going to do something, you do it. The markets respond in ways that if they believe you, reinforce what's going to happen. So when the chair of the Fed in the United States says, we're serious about inflation, we're not going to get, let prices rise faster than 2% ever, well, then people don't raise their prices because they assume that the Fed would fight that back and it becomes a self-reinforcing prophecy. When the monetary authorities in Argentina say, hey, we're going to fight inflation, when everybody's done laughing, um, they say, yeah, yeah, we've seen this movie 11 times before. I don't, I mean, it's been a long time since I wrote Naked Money. We were going to put a whole chapter on Argentina in. Instead, we just used a lot of examples. Yeah, that I'm glad you didn't do the whole chapter. That would have been that would have been more devastating. Um, so so when it comes to um, in, in naked money, when you talk about the credibility of money, as you're kind of talking about in the context of Argentina, you do address cryptocurrency and you and you take head on some of the um, bullet points that we hear from some of the anti cryptocurrency people, such as it doesn't have inherent value. And you explain that, you know, the idea of gold having inherent value is also less clear, maybe uh, than, than some people point out. What's your sense now since the book was written about cryptocurrency? We've seen, you know, early in the pandemic, people expecting Bitcoin to go crazy. We're disappointed that it didn't. But then in the last few months, we've actually seen significant increase in the in the value of Bitcoin. What's your sense of it now? I'm still not very sold on the idea that Bitcoin is here for the long run for mm -hmm. a number of reasons. I mean, part of you, you expect money to do a number of things, and I don't think Bitcoin does any of them very well. So one is as a unit of exchange. And this is the easiest one where it's clearly failed. I mean, part of the reason that we use dollars and not Argentine pesos is we have a pretty good idea of what the dollar is going to be worth next year even 10 years, I mean, maybe plus or minus 2%, but it really doesn't move a whole lot. Yeah. When Bitcoin, right, when people say, wow, Bitcoin's on a roar, it's up 400%, that's not a good thing from the standpoint of money. Now, if you invested in it, you made a lot of money. But the point of money is I'm going to buy a house and I'm going to say, you know, David, I'm going to give you uh, 100 Bitcoins a year for the next 30 years. That's the way a mortgage works. Now, if those Bitcoins go up 400% in value, my mortgage payment just went up 4%. So it's very hard for us to contract using a monetary thing, you know, that's fluctuating all the way, even if it's going up, you just want something stable. Now, the other things that we look for are, is it a good store of value? That one, I think, is also uncertain. Yes, it's gained value, but it's also plummeted at times. Well, on, um, on that also, one, Charles, after how many years of, of at least it retaining some value, would we be able to say that the store of value requirement is met? I don't know if it's a number of years. I think it's the pers the percentage of people who are persuaded that it will hold its value. I mean, okay. it is, as you correctly pointed out, it's all whether I believe that it has value. And if I do, then I'll use it. So. Um, certainly more than it used to. Yeah. Um, and, and then the last one is kind of as a unit of account or not as a unit of account, but as a medium of exchange. So how easy is it to do transactions? And it's still much easier for me to use a credit card or use cash than it is for Bitcoin. I've got to go buy the Bitcoins. And so that well, I guess let, let me one. push back slightly on that one. In the, in the last year, I mean, now, just like my credit cards linked up with my phone and I can swipe it. 
I can link Bitcoin with my phone with instant dollar conversions and swipe Absolutely. it the same way. So it's definitely changed. One, a lot of progress has been made. And yeah. I would say, you know, if you're in a place like Venezuela or you're in a place where everything is just crumbling around you, then Bitcoin might serve some of these purposes better than for me sitting here in New Hampshire. Right. You've got to park wealth someplace. You've got to move it out of the country quickly. So it, it certainly has a purpose. Now, I'll add one other caveat that may be my biggest concern which is at present, it's Bitcoin is a really handy medium of exchange for people doing really nefarious things. So we just had a huge hack of a hospital system in Vermont, one of these ransomware things where it's, you know, pay us X millions of dollars or we'll destroy all your systems. And of course, the payment they want is in Bitcoin, which is terrific for them. You know, I do have some concerns from the Bitcoin standpoint about if this becomes the medium of exchange for people doing bad things, then there might be some regulatory crackdown on it, in which case it becomes less attractive as a currency for everybody else. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I, I, I for me, the biggest concerns remain uh, in many cases, transaction fees and the, the unpredictable value that it's used for crime stuff. I mean, when Silk Road was shut down, which was believed to be a huge piece of the Bitcoin market, the Bitcoin market barely was affected in number of transactions or volume. It seemed to be a much smaller piece of it. And also, by the way, I mean, most crimes are, are being committed involving dollars. Most racketeering is happening in dollars. So that one is not super strong for me. But the logistics of of it and the volatility seem to be my biggest concerns. I don't know. Yeah. And, you know, I think bubbles are interesting. You never know for sure if you're in a bubble until it's over. So in 2005, I thought the property prices were frothy. Yeah, but I didn't short the property market. It would have been kind of hard to do. I also thought that Amazon was wildly overpriced. I was right on one of those things and terribly wrong on the other. So, you know, I think time will tell. But I, I love the discussion because I think Bitcoin forces us to think about what money is. Why yeah. are the pieces of paper issued by the Argentine government different than the pieces of paper issued by the American government? Because it's all just paper. Thinking about the next five years, 10 years. What types of systemic changes do you anticipate to economic and financial systems that are a result of either technological change or cultural change, like the big picture things? I think the biggest question is what the next phase of capitalism looks like. We're not going to go socialist. You know, I'm old enough to have lived through the Soviet Union. I traveled there. I've been to Cuba. I, that's not the future. On the other hand, I think I teach a lot of young people who look around and say, well, something's not quite right. I mean, right. why is the richest country in the history of civilization? Why are people living on the street? Uh, clearly, what the populace of both the left and the right, both Trump and Bernie, who, when you parse it, are saying some of the same things. Different policy, trade. but same similar rhetoric. Yeah, it's right. So exactly not the diagnosis is broadly similar. They are reflecting the fact that despite great wealth and over the, the my lifetime, enormous growth in the economy and incomes, people feel very insecure and they feel not fully happy with the level of disruption. And of course, we're looking at AI and other things coming down the pike. So I think the question for people who are center right and center left, so not the socialist, not the nationalist populist, is how do we tighten the safety net so that the folks who we know are being disrupted or will be disrupted 
can kind of bounce back into this vibrant growing economy without just hitting the ground. Um, and uh, interestingly, I think, you know, center left has always talked about this. When you look at the Scandinavian countries, they're, they're actually robust capitalist economies. Yes. They just have a tighter safety net. Right. But I think it's going to become more interesting for center right. There are folks like Orrin Cass, who's a conservative thinker, who's talking more about the role that unions might play from a conservative standpoint to give workers more voice. I think there's going to be a lot of fresh thinking about how we harness everything that is great about capitalism. And there's a lot there while we sew the holes up that are clearly the, the failures and deficiencies. Or in Cass, I'll have to I'll have to do, do a little reading up. Hey, before I let you go, I recently read the book Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel, which is pandemic literature. And also uh, you, it's beautiful writing. Beautiful absolutely fantastic writing. book. Fantastic yeah. book. Uh, you've written the rationing also uh, uh, about a global pandemic. This is like a genre now, pandemic literature. <laughs> it is a genre. Lawrence Wright, who's another terrific writer, wrote a book, uh, I think the end of October, which is about a pandemic. So, yes, my book, The Rationing, is about who gets the vaccine. Right. In, during a pandemic. And to, just to point out, it was written in 2019. Yes. So, yes, it is. a You know, part of the reason it's a genre is the same reason that apocalypse movies are a genre is we're fascinated by how we behave as humans in adverse circumstances. That's why we watch war movies over and over again. So it wasn't that I was a genius about the pandemic. That was just a convenient tool right. for looking at the political response. It's really a political thriller. That's the rationing. We've been speaking with Charles Whelan, professor of public policy at Dartmouth. Also check out the naked books, naked economics, naked money, naked statistics. I, I so appreciate your time today. Oh, it was great to talk to you. The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. Privacy.com is one of our sponsors, and they're giving you $5 just for using their free service at privacy.com slash Pakman. Privacy is a service I've been using for a while now. I love it. It saves me a bunch of headaches. It's completely free, and it's very quick to set up. And here's how it works. When you pay for something online or over the phone, instead of exposing your real credit card number, privacy lets you generate virtual card numbers. The payments are withdrawn from your checking account, but your real card number stays completely private and you do it all with one click. You can autofill the card number in your web browser on the phone. You can create 12 virtual cards a month. You can set spending limits, freeze them, delete them whenever you want. I especially love it for free trials where you need to give a credit card number because I can destroy the virtual card number as soon as I give it to the company and I know I won't be charged in the future. If you're ordering food over the phone, why do I need to give a restaurant my real card number? I don't have to. Companies don't have to know who you are. Your real credit card number is protected from the data breaches that happen, unfortunately, more often than we would like, and it's completely free. They do have a paid version with different tiers where you can create more virtual credit card numbers per month, cashback rewards, extra security features. But go ahead and sign up for the free service. It's a no brainer. Companies can't charge you unexpectedly. You're protected from identity theft. It costs you nothing. And privacy is giving you five dollars to spend just for signing up when you go to privacy.com slash Pacman. The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com.
I have a very strange video that is quickly becoming one of my favorite clips of the week. This is <laughs> I don't even know how to explain this. Donald Trump did an event yesterday instead of just hiding. It was good to see him do something. He did a presidential medal of freedom ceremony for Dan Gable, who's a wrestler and coach. And as the event was sort of winding down, the press assembled and was starting to ask Trump questions. And in the video I'm going to play for you, you will hear a question asked of Donald Trump about whether he will go to Joe Biden's inauguration. And Trump just sort of looked around confused, I guess, realized he didn't want to answer that question and just walked out of the room. And you can tell from the video that people are confused about why Donald Trump is leaving. And the camera weirdly cuts to Dan Gable, who's the presidential medal honoree, who looks very confused and says he's gone <laughs> because clearly no one expected such an abrupt ending to this event. It's some of the strangest behavior we've seen. Um, take a look at this. It's just absolute gold. Mr. President, one more question about the inauguration. Thank you very much. Anything on Bill Barr, sir? Congratulations. Sir. He's gone. <laughs> it really seems like the uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm theme should be playing as Donald Trump one walks out. It's comical and bizarre and unexplainable all at once. And the simplest explanation is Trump can Trump continues not to want to answer questions like, do you admit you lost? And do you concede that Joe Biden will be president and will you be going to the inauguration? And there was really no way to stay in the room without answering the questions as far as Trump was concerned. But the truth is a real president could have handled this very easily and stayed in the room without answering those questions. Trump could have said, hey, listen, guys, we're here today to honor Dan. We're celebrating Dan's incredible accomplishments. I don't know what they are, but but he presumably does. I'm just <clears throat> not familiar with Dan Gable. And he could say this isn't a time for politics. It's not a time for questions. Thank you very much. You're still avoiding the questions, but you're doing it in a slightly more reasonable way. Trump can't do it, or at least he doesn't behave in that way. And instead, just kind of bizarrely wanders off, leaving a room full of people. And everything about this event was was to a total farce. At one point there, while the event is going on, there's a little kid laying down looks like he's sleeping in the back of uh, the Oval Office or whatever room this was in all completely bizarre. And of course, Trump supporters will defend him no matter what and say, well, listen, the fake news media was throwing unfair, mean questions at him. It was presidential harassment. And uh, if you think that's crazy, uh, Dan Gable was actually interviewed this morning about this bizarre event. And he essentially said that, which was Trump didn't want to answer those questions. Truly strange times. Take a look. Um, I think Donald Trump uh, really respects me. He's always been humbled in front of me. He's never made me mad. Uh, he might have walked out of the press conference a little bit uh, yesterday, a little bit uh, perturbed with a couple newspaper newspaper people. But but uh, hey, I was having a great time. He left you in the office by yourself with your family. <laughs> That's okay. He uh, he uh, he was didn't like what was going on. He, he thought, said it was about me and it wasn't about him. So he's I'm out of there. You got it. No, I hear you. And do you have the medal with you? I I, I do right here. Can we see it's right it? here? Yep. Uh, yeah, right here. It's the it's uh, yeah. President's Medal of Freedom right here. Yeah. So uh, 
What a weird timeline that we are in. And um, I know some people have been writing to me saying Trump is comedy gold, David. I'm really going to miss Trump when he leaves office. Stuff like this, I guess, is funny in a, in a relatively benign way, and I will sort of miss it. But the country and the world are going to be so much better off with Trump gone. And we're down to just six weeks. We're all looking forward to it. Now, speaking of being down to just six weeks since Joe Biden's inauguration, we learned about something crazy yesterday. Donald Trump, now that he seems to slowly be accepting, although he won't admit it privately, he seems to be accepting that he lost to Joe Biden. Trump is reportedly planning an absolutely bonkers inauguration day stunt for January 20th. Now, as you might remember from past inaugurations, there's this tradition where the incoming president allows the outgoing president as they leave the White House to fly wherever they're going on Air Force One. Uh, Barack Obama stood there uh, and saw George W. Bush and Laura Bush off on inauguration day into Marine One helicopter and over to Air Force One to go. I believe it was back to Texas. Uh, Donald Trump likewise saw Barack and Michelle Obama off on Inauguration Day onto the helicopter, bringing them to Air Force One to go. I don't actually remember exactly where they went. In fact, maybe Barack Obama was I think he stayed in D.C. for school purposes for his kids, but maybe he went to Chicago initially or something like that. Anyway, even though Donald Trump has still not publicly acknowledged that Joe Biden won, nor has he or anyone else said that he would attend Joe Biden's inauguration on January 20th. Trump is reportedly planning to fly to Florida on Air Force One to do a competing event to Joe Biden's inauguration. Can you imagine anything more corrosive to democracy beyond the things that Donald Trump has been doing for the last month and for the last four years? What could be more corrosive to democracy on inauguration day for your successor than being the outgoing president? and holding a competing rally likely to claim either that he actually won as Joe Biden is being inaugurated or to announce his candidacy for 2024 as Joe Biden is being inaugurated. And part of the reason that it's corrosive to democracy is that it will continue to push a portion of the country's voters to believe, as they already do, that Joe Biden, as of January 20th, will be an illegitimate president in some way. Now, the truth could not be further from that claim. Joe Biden not only won electorally with the same allegedly landslide victory that Donald Trump claimed for himself in 2016, but instead of losing the popular vote by nearly three million, as Trump did in 2016, Joe Biden won by six, seven. Is it maybe even eight million votes at this point in time? So a former president being dropped off by Air Force One on Inauguration Day for a rally at which he will claim to be the real winner will not exactly project the stability of American democracy. And in fact, it will project much the opposite. Now, rally aside, an outgoing president boycotting the incoming president's inauguration, that alone would be bad enough. Now, I don't think Joe Biden cares. Biden has already said his concern is that it would be meaningful to America for Trump to be there and really see through a fully peaceful transfer of power. Biden doesn't personally care, and I really don't either. The other wrinkle is again to go back to the other possibility that Donald Trump announces his 2024 candidacy on Inauguration Day. And these two things really could be the same one. In other words, Trump might fly to a rally in Florida 
at which he makes this announcement while claiming he actually won and it was stolen from him. Now, whatever happens, what we can be sure of is number one, Trump won't behave like an adult on Inauguration Day. And two, it will be really embarrassing for the country. And three, his supporters will absolutely love it. Trump will prove once again that there is no floor to his petulant nature. There's no too far for Donald Trump. And of course, part of the whole point would be to take audience away from Joe Biden. Do you think that if Trump does a January 20th rally at the same time as the inauguration, do you think CNN will cover both in a split screen? Will MSNBC cover both in a split screen? I don't know. I think the bigger question is if Trump does this, does OAN even cover the inauguration? Does Newsmax even cover the fact that there's a new president being sworn in or do they only cover Trump's bizarre rally? We'll eventually find out what Trump is doing. We can rest easy knowing that whatever the hell he's doing at noon on January 20th, he will no longer be doing it as president. And the other story that we're hearing is that Donald Trump does indeed plan to go down to Florida to his resort for Christmas. And there are rumors which we've heard for weeks now. There are rumors that Trump will never come back to the White House, that Trump is abandoning the White House uh, for at Christmas time and won't even come back, which would uh, make irrelevant this entire idea of flying out on Air Force One might still hold the rally on Inauguration Day. Needless to say, the next six weeks are going to be completely wacky. Here's a funny voicemail we received. Our voicemail line, of course, is two one nine two David P. Uh, this caller is asking, is Rudy Giuliani on the basis of his recent covid diagnosis sort of like typhoid Mary? Take a listen to this. Hi, David. This is Gary from Oregon again. Um, do you ever consider that uh, Rudy Giuliani was sent around as typhoid Mary to mess up all of these states, Arizona, Nevada, blah, 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 in their government so that they had to close down or shut down. I wouldn't put it past Donald Trump and he's not my president. Yeah, I wouldn't put it past Trump morally this idea of, hey, maybe if we get Rudy covid positive and send him around and shut down state legislatures, maybe it'll interfere with electoral votes being formally voted on on December 14th. It, it number one, the timing of it doesn't make sense. Rudy's been flying around for a month doing this, and he likely was only contagious as of last Thursday. Now, he did by exposing the Arizona legislature, get the Arizona legislature shut down. But um, no, I think, number one, the timing doesn't make sense. Number two, I don't think they're really that organized. And number three, I don't think it even would plausibly impact the December 14th electoral vote because it doesn't really depend on state legislatures. I mean, it, it would theoretically depend on state legislatures if they want to try to interfere and send different electors. It doesn't appear anybody's going to do that. So um, morally, you're completely right. I wouldn't put it past Trump, but it requires too much organization forethought and it's not really a good plan anyway. We have a great bonus show for you today. Congress is daring Donald Trump to veto their defense spending bill. Where is that fight going to end up? The Fauci effect has led to medical school applications jumping 18 percent during the pandemic. Very interesting. 
And Donald Trump's attorney general, William Barr, days after there were rumors that Trump may fire Barr, is reportedly himself considering resignation before the end of Donald Trump's term. What would that achieve anyway at this late stage of the game? We will discuss all of those stories and more on today's bonus show. Get instant access by signing up at joinpacman.com.